Today's podcast is brought to you by It's All Your Fault, a new podcast from the scene about the Nashville Predators. The show features David Beauclair and Megan Sealing talking about all things Preds. Beauclair's covered the team for two decades, which gives him as much perspective on the franchise as anyone in Nashville. Sealing was a Predators fan before even moving to Nashville five years ago, keeps a small shrine to Victor Arvidsson on her desk, and is personal friends with Peter Laviolette's turtle. This may or may not be true. With one insider and one outsider and, an out- and a range of guests, they'll follow the team's quest to return to the Stanley Cup Finals. You can subscribe to It's All Your Fault on iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn today. Coming to you from the ugliest building in the Gulch, it's the Nashville Scenecast. My name is Steve Cavendish. I am the scene editor. If you like us, subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or TuneIn, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Rate us and leave comments. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks to Jeff the Brotherhood, who gave us our intro music, Diamond Way, from the We Are the Champions album. Today, I'm talking to Stephen Hale, staff writer here at the scene, about his cover story, Stephen, who is Cyrus Wilson? So Cyrus Wilson is a 43-year-old man who has been in prison for uh, just under 25 years now for a murder that he has always insisted he did not commit. Um, he was in uh, back in 1992. He was 18 years old when a man named Christopher Luckett, who was a day short of 20, uh, was found murdered in Edge Hill, which is a neighborhood... For those who don't know, kind of in between twelve, what is now twelve South and the Gulch, um, uh, was then and and remains a working class uh, area, low income housing, had been a predominantly African American neighborhood, um, and and in nineteen ninety two, a man named Christopher Luckett was found murdered. Um, he was found kind of stuck under a fence, chain link fence, and he had been he was dead of gunshot wounds. And Cyrus Wilson was arrested two days after that murder um, and subsequently convicted for it. So what happened at his trial in the, uh, and I guess this would have been 1994. So yeah, he's arrested in September of 92. The trial's in February of 1994. Um, And the case against him was uh, entirely circumstantial and uh, based on circumstantial evidence and witness testimony. Um, in particular, juvenile witness testimony. A couple months before Christopher Luckett's death, Cyrus Wilson had reported to the police, uh, one police officer in particular who testified at the trial, that Cyrus Wilson had flagged him down and told him that his car had been stolen at gunpoint, and he told him that Christopher Luckett did it. So they, they at the time, Cyrus Wilson and his mom declined to pursue a warrant and kind of you know, the the officer testified that Cyrus Wilson wanted to kind of let it go. Um, he was upset about it, uh, but wanted to just kind of didn't want to pursue it further legally. And uh, they ended up finding the car. It had been stripped of its stereo system, its wheels, its rims. And it was an old car from the 60s. It's like a 68 Bel Air. But in the view of the prosecution, that gives him motive. Right. So the the, the in as far as the prosecution is concerned, he had a beef with Christopher Luckett about his car. And, and so... A couple months later, when when Christopher Luckett was found killed, they arrested Cyrus Wilson for it. And the the testimony at the trial, again, largely came from uh, people who were juveniles at the time, 
some of them 14, um, 15, 16-year-old kids who either testified that they saw the actual murder occur or that they had seen Cyrus Wilson in the in the days and weeks before the murder and that he had been talking about wanting to get Christopher Luckett. So there were two uh, witnesses who said that they saw Cyrus Wilson chasing Christopher Luckett with a shotgun, shooting at him that Christopher Luckett had tried to get over this fence and had been able, unable to do that. He was actually uh, partially disabled after a car accident. He had a nickname. Uh, he had a nickname. He was known as Crip. Um, and all these, all these guys that testified at the trial referred to him as that he did not have the use of his right arm or his right hand so so he got that nickname from that but anyway so they testified that they saw cyrus wilson chase him down and then when he got to this fence he was begging for his life and that cyrus wilson shot him to death as he was begging for his life and uh so this is all the testimony that occurs at trial they they say they saw this and in two days the trial only lasts two days and uh jury convicts cyrus wilson of of first degree murder um, so there's two things. And he's sentenced to life in prison. There's two things that kind of strike me. One is that uh, Luckett, kind of in absentia because of his disability, is is a bit sympathetic. Right. And that Cyrus Wilson, and and you write about this in the story, um, we have a we have his photograph on the cover this week. And when you see his when you see him in his arrest uh, photo, it is striking how young he looks. Yeah. Yeah, but he didn't look like that when he came to trial, right? And just just to note um, another thing about you mentioned Christopher Luckett being sympathetic character. I mean, it's it's also worth noting that the murder, as described by these witnesses, um, is truly truly horrific. I mean, not that it wouldn't be anyway, but they they describe uh, Christopher Luckett being cornered, trapped on the ground, begging for his life, being shot once, continuing to beg for his life, and being shot again. So I mean, it's a, it's a very kind of you know cold act in in what they describe um and you're right this this original mugshot is just it's it's the kind of thing you can't get out of your head because it's a very striking image of what looks like a a kid i mean just a skinny young kid um but in the story i we talked to cyrus wilson's now wife casey wilson who was at the trial the, the original trial and the sort of backstory of this is in the story but point is she was at the trial and um she describes seeing him like we see him in this photo being you know kind of tall skinny kid and then a year and a half almost two years later seeing him walked into the trial and the way she put it to me and i quote her in the story is she said you know what do you do when you're in jail for two years you work out that's all you do so she said you know he's he's 50 pounds heavier um he's got his hair in cornrows he's in a jump prison jumpsuit and he's shackled um you know the way she put it to me in the story is he fit the profile he looks um, the part. Yeah, I mean, when and it it's a broader point too, which is that when you're a criminal defendant in a criminal trial, you often look like a criminal from the get go, or at least what a criminal looks like in the popular imagination. Cyrus Wilson is also black, so that comes into play here. You have this, um, you know, young black kid who is marched in looking like the stereotypical marched in in shackles. Yeah, I mean, you know, so from the beginning, he he looks. He looks like well, if you if, if you walked in the courtroom off the street, everyone goes, oh, so that's the guy that did it. I mean, that's the that's the kind of assumption. And she talked a lot about the sort of theater of these trials. That that's obviously part of the point from the prosecution's point of view is to to set this up from the get go to to go the way the way they want it to go. 
so Wilson is will after Wilson's conviction and there was there were appeals that were made. Right. Um they and, and some of these are I mean standard may not be the right word, but these things happen, you know. He he like I said he maintained his innocence from the beginning. So after he's convicted he even, he even took the stand. He took the stand against his uh, attorney's advice um and basically he tells me um we talked to him briefly for the story and he told me that you know, he did it because he, he sat there and watched people lie about him the whole trial, and he insisted on getting on the stand and saying that they were lying. And, in fact, that exact thing happened. It was one of my favorite moments of the court transcript just because it's so striking is uh, the prosecutor asks him, so you're saying that everyone who's testified here that says they saw you with that shotgun is lying? And he says, yes, ma'am. I mean, you know, he just directly the whole time said, they're lying about me, I didn't do this. His It's just worth noting for... Uh, it's in the story, of course, but for for listeners that he he did have a, an alibi, so to speak. I mean, he said he was at an apartment nearby, what, the apartment he lived in. Um, his girlfriend at the time testified at the trial. They were not together when they say they heard the gunshots, but they were together. They say they were together moments later, you know, a few moments later. So, um, yes, so they appeal. So that, all that is to say that he's convicted and they filed an appeal. They um, based on a you know ineffective assistance of counsel, um, and that didn't didn't go anywhere really. He was denied, and and the interesting thing about this case is that at that point he doesn't have much else to fight against. Um, I mean, he's already said that the witnesses are lying; no one believes him. There's not DNA in this case. Officers who originally responded to the murder scene testified at the trial that they didn't attempt to take fingerprints off of. Um, shotgun shells or a bag that was found nearby or things because it was very damp that night apparently and so they just wouldn't work so they don't there's not really there's not really physical evidence the way that you would normally say okay well i didn't do this so test that blood or test this sure you know whatever or in a rape case say or or some of these other crimes where in in our time now you can point to some dna evidence or something like that there wasn't any of that for them to fight which so which brings us sort of to the irony of the case which is cyrus wilson is convicted largely on circumstantial evidence it's a very weak sort of physical case there's no gun that's introduced there's no there's nothing there it's just a motive and and the word of these eyewitnesses right it's it's kind of a horrible irony because the fact that it's a weak case against him makes it that much harder harder to to prove it wrong in a way because there's not there's not a whole lot there to grab onto there's nothing to point to directly uh, you know other than to just keep saying that people are lying which he did but what are you going to do you know people there was there was nowhere to go really so wilson um wilson goes back to uh goes back to he's been in prison he's been i think you describe as moved around different yeah, he, facilities around the state. Yeah, he had been to a couple different. And then uh, he gets sort of a break. Right. So in 2008, I think I'm right in saying, he um, obtains this note, a handwritten note that was in a file, a, one of the prosecutor's files that had not been turned over to his defense attorney at the time of the original trial. And the note says... Good case, but for the witnesses are all juveniles and have already lied multiple times. Um, Would have been maybe helpful at trial too. Pretty, pretty interesting. Um, and it, for obvious reasons, is seen by him as a as an important piece of new evidence or information. Um, for but the- for people who aren't maybe familiar with these things, I mean, setting aside kind of all the different legal categories, the the broad point here is that. Cyrus Wilson's goal the whole time is to get a new trial. 
So he he's just wanting to go to be able to go to court and show them something that is will be considered new evidence that might have changed the outcome of the original trial so that they'll say, okay, we need to do this again. I mean, that's basically what his goal is the whole time. So, um, but just briefly to go back. So this note is really interesting because going back through the original trial transcripts, you can see where these witnesses, there are inconsistencies in the original trial. Um, and, and some of them are cleared up during the testimony because the prosecutor is, is asking them questions and kind of, it's funny. I mean, pe- you know, we're all familiar with the objection to leading questions, but that's what a court case is, is leading questions. It's, it's always <laughs> right, asking right. questions that you know the answer to, or there's an answer that you're supposed to get. And so there are times in the original trial where these, again, juvenile witnesses are on the stand and they're being asked questions. And then the answer, the answer they give is clearly not the answer the prosecutor is expecting. And then they're walked back onto the path or they're reminded that they're under oath and they're reminded of what perjury is. And they're asked again and again. And so it is a little weird to begin with. And then during that trial, at one point when the defense attorney makes a motion for acquittal, arguing that the state has not met its burden of proof, uh, and that these witnesses have been inconsistent and something the prosecutor at the time basically says, almost what she says in her note, which is there have been inconsistencies, but these are young kids. They saw a horrific thing and, you know, it's to be expected, but we, broadly speaking, we, the, the thrust of what they've testified is true. So, so it's just interesting in light of that note, you know, all these years later, but so he gets this note and um, the courts, however, don't really view this note as anything. Right. They, they end up, it goes all the way to the state Supreme Court and they end up ruling that it's inadmissible, it's attorney work product, and, and and that it's not enough to force a new trial for him. So that kind of comes and goes. In 2011, something uh, something changes sort of materially with the with the case itself. What right. Ha- what happened? So two at that point, two witnesses come forward. And I don't mean to be redundant, but it's just it, it's so key. Two witnesses who were juveniles at the original trial, teenagers come forward saying that they lied at trial. They want to recant their testimony. And in in particular, they say that they had been coerced, pressured by police uh, and the prosecutor to give that testimony. And the the interesting, it's not a side note, I mean, it's an important note here, is that the the detective that they make these allegations against is is a man named Bill Pridemore, who some people may be familiar with, is now a Metro Councilman, serving his second term on the Metro Council. He had been a on the Metro Police Force for 33 years before he retired in 2008. So he was a murder detective. And they say that they were threatened with prosecution themselves. Um, that basically that Pridemore, the prosecutors, others came to them and said, tell us what we want to hear. I'm paraphrasing, but essentially tell us what we want to hear. This is our theory of the case. Testify to it. You know, kind of forcing them to confirm what they believed happened. And they did. So they said, you know, so we went to... You know, one of them says that uh, his his mom basically told him, you know, do what do what they're asking you to do, cooperate with the police, and he did it. You know, I mean, you could, so so yeah, so that that is obviously a big break, um, a big development. But again, not not to the court. Ultimately, the courts they they take it to criminal court and then they take it up to the court of appeals which rules that you know denies his his attempt for a new trial again the, the criminal court had determined that these witnesses weren't credible in their eyes which is interesting that there's a question of witness credibility now versus witness credibility exactly again. um i mean it's it's you know the so the, you end up with a prosecutor in court defending the original testimony of people that they're also tr- painting as perjurers and liars and criminals it's very it's it's a bizarre situation um in that hearing and that's i'm almost quoting directly 
um, Assistant District Attorney Dan Ham, he says in his closing argument at the 2013 hearing regarding these recanting witnesses, he tells the judge, you know, these are all we have here is uh, some, you know, confessions by perjurers, admitted perjurers and convicted felons or something. You know, I mean, so they're very dismissive of what these guys are saying at this point. But these are the people who carried their case 20 years ago. So there was another sort of break in this case right you mentioned earlier that there was not a murder weapon introduced at the trial and at in this 2013 hearing along with these recanting witnesses they actually discussed this too uh cyrus wilson's attorney introduces this tbi report that shows that the shotgun that police had recovered and not at the scene but had obtained and believed was the murder weapon did not match the shells that were found at the crime scene. So Cyrus Wilson and his attorney used this to argue, you know, the shotgun that you've spent all this time insinuating and arguing that I had access to and that I even had was not used in this crime. So, and it's interesting to look back and see that, you know, that TBI report was from the time of the original trial. And obviously why the prosecution didn't introduce it is because it did not prove that this weapon was the murder weapon. So they ended up not having a murder weapon at the trial. So two more witnesses come forward. So then several years later, and this is now brings us to earlier this year, um, two more witnesses come forward and say they want to recant their testimony. Both of them actually reach out to Cyrus Wilson in prison. Um, both, both of these witnesses are currently incarcerated as well. They reach out to Cyrus Wilson in prison. One of them writes a letter, which we quote from in the story. And I have a copy of where he says, you know, this has been weighing on me for 20 years. I want to get it off my conscience and and help you in your case. So he, he writes out like a six page affidavit describing, again, the same story saying, and this guy's name is Marquise Harris. He was 13 at the time that uh, he first spoke to detective, then detective Bill Pridemore. And he says that Pridemore came to him. Um, he says the first interaction was kind of a brief discussion and that Pridemore came back couple days later and caught him on his before he was uh he was leaving the apartment for school and asked harris you know can we go inside and talk about this uh marquise harris says his parents weren't home at the time they go inside and at that point he says that primore basically you know leans on him and pressures him pretty hard saying you know you don't want to throw your life away for someone else's mistake uh we know you know kind of saying you know what happened here you know that cyrus wilson did this and you know tell us this write this statement out and it won't cause you any trouble. And um, and again, like the others, Marcus Harris says, so that's what he did. He and went to trial and testified that he had witnessed the actual murder um, and gave a very kind of graphic testimony about seeing Cyrus Wilson chase Christopher Luckett and shoot him three times and as he was begging for his life. Turns out, Harris says, and he testified at a, at a hearing this week, actually, he didn't know Cyrus Wilson. He didn't know Christopher Luckett. He says the only details he knew about this murder were the ones that he heard from the police and the prosecutors themselves. So he says that he ended up basically parroting what they told him on the stand because he was afraid of being charged with things. And they, you know, in his affidavit, he claims that they were saying he was going to be charged with the crime. Um, the second witness that recanted his testimony and and uh, testified at this hearing earlier this week said that sort of a similar thing that the prosecutor had threatened him uh, with being charged with accessory to murder if he didn't give this testimony that he says was not true at all. So you're left with, after this hearing this week, from the original case, no murder weapon, no eyewitnesses, and not really much that you could... Right. All you have... I mean, if you're starting now, <laughs> you know, all you have, and this is, of course, why 
Cyrus Wilson and his attorney want a new trial, and this is why the prosecutor's office, as of now, this is why prosecutors don't want a new trial, because they like the trial they got the first time. I mean, the trial now, the case now would just be that Cyrus Wilson says he had his car stolen and he was upset about it. You know, that's that's it. That's all that's left. It creates a very bizarre kind of situation where, you know, you have these now grown men making these claims. Bill Pridemore, we should say, denies all of this, says he didn't threaten any witnesses. He didn't coerce anyone or force their testimony. And there was kind of an interesting moment there with, with there, Pridemore. There was this. I, I, th- I think I mentioned this in a story. It's fuzzy now, but I, I think it's, it's toward, toward the end of the story here where Cyrus Wilson's attorney, Jesse Lords, um, when Pridemore is on the stand, asks him, so, you know, if, if you threatened a witness or coerced a witness, uh, that would be a crime, right? And Pridemore essentially gets Pridemore to admit that, yes, that would be a crime. It would certainly be an unethical thing to do. And he talks to him about how he's a Metro Council member, and, you know, you have to get elected to that. It's a public, uh, you're a public official. And he says, so if you did these things, if you did what these men accuse you of doing, you probably wouldn't admit to it on the stand here today, would you? Which, you know, caused a great uproar in the in the court and the objections and things like this. I mean, I think Pridemore ultimately said, I would tell the truth, but the point was pretty much made that, you know, the nature of these things is that you're not going to now say, yeah, well, that's what we did. So <laughs> it's... um. It's a, it, it leaves it in a very strange case, situation because, like you said earlier, the prosecutor now is left arguing that these men who, when they were teenagers, shouldered this prosecution. I mean, really bore you know the brunt. They they were the the star witnesses. They were the the whole thing is on their backs. Now they're just they're liars, criminals. Who? How can you trust anything they say? You know, just dismisses it out of hand. And on the flip side, the defense is saying, "Well, this is look. They're saying they lied." I mean, the interesting thing is, so you you think of how how to evaluate what they're saying now. Certainly, the two men who just testified this week say they reached out to Cyrus Wilson. They initiated this themselves. They're both incarcerated, and um, the two men that testified this week, the witnesses who recanted, are both going to be incarcerated for some time. I mean, one of them is in for murder, one for attempted murder, among other things. They're not. It's hard to see what they're gaining, um, what they stand to gain by recanting this testimony. So Jesse Lord, Cyrus Wilson's attorney, walked out of that hearing knowing that they're probably going to lose. Right. He. Um, I was standing outside the courtroom when the hearing ended, and Jesse Lords came out. There's sort of a group of uh, you know Casey Wilson, Cyrus's wife, and and some other friends and supporters and things uh, were standing there, and he came out to kind of debrief them on how things had gone, and they had some questions for him, and he basically told them, you know, I, he was sort of um, happy with how things had gone, but he told them basically he thought it set them up well for the next round. Obviously, that's not because he doesn't think they have a good argument. It's because he knows that criminal court judges aren't in the habit of... Uh, Overturning. granting new trials and overturning their own convictions which this would be seth norman um, was the judge in the original trial and he was the judge that heard this hearing uh, monday so he's been here the whole time and uh him and cyrus wilson are the only original players left in this thing the other thing i found just kind of fascinating about all of this is that cyrus wilson could be out right now yeah, so and we mentioned this in the story. He and his wife tell me that he was and it's it this is a difficult thing. I mean, we we don't these aren't the sort of things that you have paper on, but he they tell us that there was just there were discussions um what 2011, 2012 thereabouts. Right, they were, right as the witnesses first witnesses were recanting. Right. Um 
there were around that uh, the time of they were they were pushing the note the issue with the note the prosecutor's note that there were discussions between his then attorney and the prosecution about a plea deal he had at that point he had served about 18 19 years and that he was told by his attorney that there were discussions that would have let him out with time served Um, and he says he shut those down because he wasn't going to plead guilty so he you know arguably possibly could could be out of prison right now if he was willing to admit to doing this and he refused to do so he has parole coming up at some point, doesn't he? Yeah, there there, there was actually um, a little discussion about this because there's an issue with him being credited for days and how many days the prison system has credited to him and how many they might owe him, um, which which I'm actually going to follow up on and kind of get that straight. But yeah, so he it has to do with the way the sentencing has changed. But he the life sentence he got is different than the one that they hand out now, but he will come up for parole. So that's another, you know, th- this whole story is basically just one glimmer of hope for him after another. Um, so far, all of them being, you know, and it's shut po- down. And it's possible uh, the district attorney's office has a conviction re- review unit that is part of all this. That's right. Um, yeah. that and they're, they're looking at it right now to kind of determine whether it they believe it warrants reinvestigation. Uh, district attorney Glenn Funk said something kind of interesting to you. He gave you a, a statement, but he said, you know, criminal convictions need to be need to be final. And, and, and I understand that from a societal point of view. You need to have right. things that you are sure of and that you are confident of before you send someone to jail. Uh, and, and, you know, society needs resolution on these sort of things. But at the same time, what happens when, what happens when they get it wrong? And that's what that, that's what that review unit is about. Right. And I think, um, yeah, they, the line they try to walk and are trying to walk, I think, is, you know, they... They don't want to feel like they're potentially reopening every case, every conviction they have, right. you know, creates this weird tension in the DA's office because on one hand, you know, they have a prosecutor who's in court hammering away at these recanting witnesses saying this conviction is solid. Don't believe these people, you know, and then in another corner of the office, some veteran prosecutors are huddled around this case file trying to decide if it's worth looking into. And so it's a it's a kind of weird situation. But, yeah, they have not decided to reinvestigate it yet, but they're kind of. It's in their hands. They have it and they can look at it if they want. So we'll see. Stephen, thanks. Thank you very much.